Everybody feeling perky and refreshed after the time change? Feeling good? Come on. Um, I, I got to be honest, I have a slightly ulterior motives. I'm really glad to be preaching today. Um, you know, because Job's such a simple book, it's always good to come to the end and be able to just put a bow on it neatly. But I'm also uh, selfishly glad because having to preach today made me get a haircut for the first time in six months. And uh, I was looking like I was auditioning for a Bee Gees tribute band. Um, so thank goodness, small mercies. <clears throat> um, I'll take this off for a minute. So used to being at school. Don't get to take them off. Um, let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we turn the time over to you as if it was ours to turn over. <laughs> and we ask that you would invade our minds and our hearts and our souls in this room with your overwhelming presence and uh, leave... Uh, leave us reckoning with the glory and majesty of who you are. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, well, today we come to the end, which I'm going to argue is in some ways the beginning uh, of, of our theology. The end of Job is the beginning of theology. Uh, but let's tie up the book and then look back a little bit on where we've been. As you just heard Carrie Jane read so beautifully, um, we now have sort of the, the, the making things right portion, which is, is nice, isn't it? It feels like it, there's, a, there's a completion, a sense of sort of closure that we get here that, that feels really good. Because it's been, I mean, this is a book full of tension, isn't it? This is a book where you're left with a lot of anxiety and aggravation the whole way through. Maybe you're aggravated at, at God for doing all this, allowing Satan to do this to Job. Maybe you're mad at Job because you say, Job, don't, don't cave, buddy. Maybe you're mad at the friends, and I argue rightfully so, uh, for being such knuckleheads with their advice. You know, what, this, this book is, and it's so long and drawn out, right? You just got chapter after chapter of listening to dumb people talk. Um, I'm sure there's no parallels in your real life. Um, but it just goes on and on and on, and you want to reach it and say, somebody, come on, figure it out. And at last, of course, God shows up and says, you talking to me? <laughs> and there's the great, we'll call it a conversation with Job. I feel like it was more one-sided than anything felt more like a monologue than a dialogue. And Job repents at the end of it. He says, you know, I think the best posture for me is this one. You know, and probably that's a good posture for a lot of us. And you wonder, so now what? God's just said, you got it wrong. You, you didn't, you, you, you know, you, you don't know what you're talking about. And so when it comes to this section, to see the incredible mercy of God at work is really, really beautiful. 
came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, this is so great. Because, again, I'm, I'm very fleshly and I've been waiting for these guys to get theirs. They've been bothering me for about 30 chapters. And to see God say, you know what, I'm mad at you. I'm just straight up mad at you. My wrath is kindled against you. Things you do not want to hear God say. I'm mad at you, you three. But then he adds this thing, because you haven't said what's right, as my servant Job has. So Job didn't quite get it wrong, did he? What's God talking about here? Because Job just repented, right? Job just said, I should stop talking. So how did, what did Job get right that these guys got wrong? Well, and it's a simple thing. Simple, by the way, doesn't mean easy. But it's a simple thing. And, and, and it's the, the theme of this entire book and of this day, this day's sermon is, is Job got God's sovereignty right, whereas the other guys got it wrong. God is not an equation. The three friends looked and said, I've got this figured out. Here's how it works. A plus B always equals C. 100% of the time. So if you suffer, you did something bad. If you're blessed, you did something good. Of course, we, as we're reading the text, know from the very first chapter that Job was blameless and upright in the eyes of God. He didn't do anything wrong. And that's his protest the entire book. Why, if, why am I getting this? I didn't do anything wrong. The thing that that these three friends got wrong is that they reduced God to an equation. They reduced him to something that simple. And by telling God what he can and cannot do, that he is in any way restricted or constrained to behave in a certain way, you have just said he is less than God. Because if God is to be omnipotent, if he's to be sovereign, if he's to be all-powerful and all-knowing, then you cannot put any limits on him. You can't tell him, God, you have to dot, dot, dot. Because he doesn't have to dot, dot, dot anything. They came to him and they said, Job, this is simple. And Job said, no, it's not. And Job was right and they were wrong. It's interesting that Elihu is not included in this list. God says, I'm mad at the three. Um, And I love that. When I was a young man in ministry, I liked it that the young guy kind of spoke truth to power. That um, while he didn't get the full picture, just like Job didn't get the full picture, he didn't get this wrong. He was smart enough to know the three guys were off. And he said so. And God doesn't, he just, Elihu just sort of takes a pass right here, which is, you know, that's kind of cool. So young people, anywhere you are out there in the ether, I'm looking, they're supposed to be right there. But anyhow, you know what I mean. To all my virtual young people, don't be afraid to tell us if if we're wrong. The crusty old ones like me. If you think we've got it wrong and you've got a solid argument, this is what I tell my students. I don't need you to agree with me. I need you to defend your position with evidence. So if you come to me and say, Phil Bryan, I think you got it wrong and here's what the text says, I will say, perhaps through gritted teeth, thank you. God can speak through the young too. Don't forget it. 
So God says, fellas, you need to make a sacrifice. You're really, you're, you're really, we got to clean up this mess. Take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept him so that I may do, so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. It's the second time he said that. This sacrifice that God asks from these three guys is rather large. Um, if you, if you sort of compare it with sacrifices that are asked, seven bulls and seven rams is a big sacrifice. God's upset. And I love that Job acts as priest here. Go take him to Job. Sacrifice with Job and let Job pray for you. It's almost like, you know, I, I don't even want to look at you right now. I don't even want to talk to you. That's how angry I am. Because if I show up, and if I, and I love what he says, if I gave you what you deserved according to your folly, you'd be obliterated. Now, this is what we call irony. These are the guys who said, God always gives you what you deserve. And God says, okay, want to play that game? You know what you deserve? You deserve to be blown off the map. I'll tell you what we do. Why don't I give you not what you deserve? Why don't I show you mercy? Because your folly, I'm up to here with it. And I have every right as the sovereign God that I am because you have said what is wrong against me repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I could do whatever I want, but you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to just show you mercy, which not only proves my loving kindness, but proves again how wrong you were. I am not a transaction. I am a being. I am the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the author and finisher of your faith. How dare you say I'm just an equation. So these guys have to go and they have to go get the sacrifice. They bring it. Job prays for them, which, by the way, if you were Job, how would you be feeling about your friends right now? Thank goodness for that whole pray for your enemies bit. (laughs) Here's Job. But again, Job's character, going all the way back to chapter 1, we know what kind of man he is. Of course he prayed for his friends. Does he want them to suffer? Probably not, because he's Job. He's a good guy. And he prays for his friends, and things are restored. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted, by the way, notice what it says, the Lord accepted who? Job. I'm convinced that I stand here before you today, neither dead nor in prison, because of Righteous people who prayed for me my whole life. There were, there were sweet, sweet old ladies at Grace Bible Church as a kid. Myrtle Kelly is one. And she prayed for me every day of her life. And I didn't deserve that. But she did. Because I was a pastor's kid. Maybe she knew something about pastor's kids. But she prayed for the pastor's kids every day of her life. Because she said, you know, I just that's something I do. And I, I'm convinced that part of the reason I have dodged so many bullets is because of sweet old ladies who prayed for me my entire life. God bless the, the righteous people who stand in the gap for me. Sometimes when we're not smart enough, 
to pray for ourselves. You notice the three friends, they're too busy philosophizing and theologizing, getting it wrong, of course, to stop and say, why don't we just pray? God's okay with Job. And I think it's important to remember that because I think we often come to God a little bit sheepish or more sheepish than we need to be. I don't, I don't suggest that in any way we should be cavalier before the living God, that we should sit around and lower him in any way. But I will tell you, there is something about this, Job's full frontal conversation with God. It reminds me of David. Right? Have you read the Psalms lately? David's pretty unfiltered with God, isn't he? And if David's not happy, David says so. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's weird because if I talk to my teachers that way, usually they're like, push in your chair, get out. But God says, all right, sounds like we're going to have a real conversation. You know, God can stand up to me being a little bent out of shape. Did you know that? I think what he values most is the honesty, the transparency, and the vulnerability of saying, God, I'm profoundly hurt right now, and I don't understand. And I could lie to you and, you know, coat everything in candy and say, oh, Lord, it's just wonderful that I'm suffering. But I don't think that right now. I actually think it's kind of a drag. And I'm kind of holding you responsible because I don't get it. And you know what? I think God can handle that conversation. I don't think he's going, golly, Phil's very, using very strong words. I'm going to let him cool down a little bit. Gee whiz. God's pretty sturdy that way. The thing is, you just have to be ready. If you're going to have that conversation with him, then he'll have it with you. Have your big boy or big girl pants on because he will come back with an answer. And the answer may take your breath away. The answer may completely reorient your entire understanding of the world, which is kind of what happens in this book. Now, Job gets everything back in multiples. What's the temptation here? The temptation here is to go, see, aha, there you go. And we're right back to an equation. Aren't you tempted to go, well, so as long as you endure your suffering long enough, God will show up and make everything not just, he won't just restore it, he'll make it better. Isn't it tempting to think that? And by the way, wouldn't it be convenient? Wouldn't it be great while you were suffering to be able to say, okay, okay, it is bad right now, admittedly, but God's guaranteed to make things fantastic when it's done. So everybody just hang in there, because once we're done with the suffering... We're actually going to upgrade. Is that how this works? Because see, that's where the prosperity theology comes from, right? Why is it that we want to make everything an equation? Is it just out of convenience for us? Is it just that simple? It's, it, it, it's strange to me that we run so to these equations of, of, of input-output, of justice, of balancing scales, because you know how often they would work against us? I am not a fan of justice for, for, for Phil Bryan. I'm a fan of it for you. 
I think everybody, everybody wants to put justice on you. That's fine with me. I, I, I'm okay with that. But don't, don't now, there, for me, there's an extenuating circumstance. Let me explain. I have students who do this. If they see me telling a kid, well, just turn it in late. Don't worry. I understand. They go, Mr. Brian, that's not fair. It's kind of like the older brother in the uh, prodigal son story. Well, that's not fair. I turned mine in on time. Then that kid, you know, two months later comes and goes, okay, okay, Mr. Brian, okay, okay, okay. Here's the thing. The dog ate my Wi-Fi. We always want justice externally, but we kind of want mercy internally, don't we? God doesn't give Job this stuff because he feels bad and he has to make it right because he's restoring justice. Why does God give Job all this stuff? Because it's mercy. Why did he forgive the three friends instead of smiting them off the planet? Because of mercy. By the way, why does God do most of anything he does most days? It's out of mercy. God restores Job's fortunes. Sure. And that's great. But there are times where he doesn't do that. We'll look at it in a minute. But in Job's case, things turn out pretty great. Lots of sheep, lots of camels, lots of ox, lots of donkeys. What's not the love? Then he gets ten new kids. I had this friend growing up, Pascal James. And uh, she said... She was convinced most people did not preach on this and they just weren't catching it, that this was actually the punishment to Job's wife for saying curse God is that she had to give birth to 10 more kids. I don't know how that stacks up theologically, but I love it personally. I think it's hysterical. But it ends up with all these kids and, and, and it's there, there's an emphasis on the daughters, which is very interesting. It's unique because... This is, <clears throat> this is not a time when daughters received inheritance. It's a time when sons received inheritance. It's when your sons were named. We find out the sons' names, not the daughters' names. But in this case, we find the daughters' names, not the sons' names, don't we? And the daughters receive an inheritance, and, and their names are given, and I'm not going to butcher their beautiful Hebrew names, but they all refer in meaning to their worth and their beauty. And I think, I think the idea here is that the restoration of Job was so much that it wasn't just his sons who were known, his daughters were. And he had so much wealth that he could cut his daughters into the inheritance just as much as his sons were. It speaks to the, the overfilling of God's restoration of Job. He didn't just make it right. He did make it right and upgrade Job. But he didn't do it because he owed it to Job. He didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he loves Job. And after this, he lives 140 years, saw his sons and grandsons, four generations. He died an old man full of days. I love that phrase, full of days. I'm not crazy about that term during a pandemic, because I think we're all feeling a bit full of days. Um, We can kind of count them all for the last year. But the idea of full of days, that word full here means like satisfied or even overfilled. But I also, this reminds me that, that full of days, sometimes what are your days filled with? I mean, part of what we get filled with is the tough stuff, isn't it? I always found it interesting when Jesus said, I came to give you life and that you might, I gained, that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. 
But you notice abundant. What is <laughs> abundantly means I'm going to have a lot of life. And I think that means it's going to be injected with a lot. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee all of it's going to be perfect today. Here's Job. He's, he's full of days. And you know what? He can remember some of them that were pretty, pretty bitter. Can't he? That's okay. That's part of the equation. That's part of the deal. We live in a cursed world. You realize that? The same God who restored Job's blessings is the one who called the curse down on this planet. So we're going to have both of those. There's no getting out of it. Despite how much we try to, to unwire the curse. So it's a happy ending, right? Isn't that great? How many people like happy endings? There you go. See, I'm, I, I'm the guy that likes the like depressing art house French movie. You know, that's sort of my vibe. But everybody else in my household likes, uh, it's Friday night's movie night, and uh, this Friday they were like, we need a comedy. Okay, sorry guys. Anyhow, happy ending. Everything's great. Couldn't be better. So what's our takeaway? Now we've read Job. What's the takeaway? What do you, what do you, what do you walk away from this and say, okay, I've got it. You went, as a teacher, we have this thing when you're preparing classes, we have this little phrase that they use, a SWEBAT. Student will be able to. That's what it stands for. SWEBAT. Student will be able to. And we goal is when you leave my classroom today, you will be able to dot, dot, dot. Whatever my objective was. God is a teacher all the time. And there's something that he was thinking Job will be able to. Or for you and me, as we read this text, Phil will be able to. What are we going to walk away from with this? It's also interesting to realize that Job's the oldest book we've got in the canon of Scripture. If you're a teacher, what do you do on the first day of class? Anybody know? You typically do two things. You do the syllabus. Here's what you can expect. And you do classroom procedures or class norms. Here's how we're going to behave. Here's how we're going to relate to each other in, in my class. That's what I do my first day. I say, these are the books we're going to read. These are the texts. These are the basic flow of the class. And here's how we're going to treat each other. That's all I want to accomplish on day one of my class. If you're God and you say, I'm going to write a book for humanity so that they can understand. And knowing that for thousands of years in this story, humanity will be passing this along through oral tradition and it will, it will domino effect. So the oldest book will be repeated the most in theory, right? Because you've had it the longest. It'll be the first thing repeated. The first book God decides to write down. It wasn't Genesis. Genesis deals with an older time. The oldest book in, te- in the text of scripture is Job. Now stop and think about that. Does this seem like an odd choice for first book? Like, why is this one so important to put down on paper first? Before anything else, we need to settle this. The longer I've looked at it, I think, of course this is the first book. Because it sets up, it sets up the relationship right off the bat that we ought to have with God. Because it draws a line in the sand and it asks a few questions that you have to answer. One is, is God sovereign or is he not? Is he sovereign or is he not? And that, that's deceptively simple question, isn't it? 
Because I imagine we've all been in situations where we've said, God, what are you doing? Haven't we? Why? Why is this happening? Why me? Why, why, why my family? Why my country? Why whatever? Whatever it is that's got you, you go, why, 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 why? God's either sovereign or he's not. He's either in absolute control of everything or he's not in absolute control of everything. He either knows what he's doing or he doesn't know what he's doing. There is no middle ground. With Phil Bryan, I have good days and bad days. Some days, man, I like when I go to my class and teach, I always have a plan, believe it or not. I always have a plan. My plan does not always work. Did you know that? Some days, my great plan just craters, crashes, burns in slow motion, painful, awkward silences. And then other days I walk in and my plan doesn't matter because there's another plan that was better that I couldn't have planned for, but serendipity just took us there. And about one out of 12, my plan works. God's not sitting there going, all right, guys, we're going to do the Job experiment. Let's roll the dice and see what happens. We have to believe God's either in absolute sovereign control of everything and he knows what he's doing or he doesn't. We also have to ask the question, is God good or not? Is he good? Because you can be in control and be not nice. History has shown us that through many despotic leaders, correct? You can be in control and be a a bad thing. So, first question, is God in control? Second question, is he a good God who's in control? I know that the book of Job has actually been the reason why many people have rejected the Christian faith. I had a professor in college who said, Job is the reason I'll never be a Christian. Because what kind of God thinks it's fun to just mess around in your yard? It does look a little odd sometimes. How how are you doing with that beginning of the book? Sure, Satan, take a shot. How's that make you feel? Let's talk about our feelings right now. See, the the, the super spirituals say, well, I'd be honored that the Lord would feel that comfortable to put me out in front of the... Okay, thanks. We're all impressed. I, for one, don't like it. The thought that God would say... Go after Phil. I'm like, no, 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 no. He was joking. Don't go. Don't go after Phil. Uh-uh. No, no. He meant Rick. He was pointing. I saw it. He was not pointing at me. He said to go after Rick. I don't like the thought that God is sitting around in some sort of realm that is so far beyond me, making some sort of cosmic bargain with the devil. I just. Don't feel super comfortable with that. And from where I'm sitting, it it makes me uneasy. But I have to ask the question, did God do that to entertain himself? Did God do that because he's evil? Did God do that because he just likes watching human suffering? Or does God know what he's doing and he somehow is expressing his love through all of this? Is he still good? 
when he lets the bad stuff come overwhelming us. When the waves of tragedy and suffering overtake you. Is God still good? When we had our power outage, um, pipe burst, we did the trifecta. We thought we'd go ahead and blow it out. We did a power outage, a pipe burst, and then our water heater died. So we thought, why not? Um, I thought about just setting the house on fire, collecting the insurance money, but I was told that's illegal. <laughs> Who knew? But during that week, as everybody's power and water and everything began to get sorted out, we were texting the family, we were checking on each other, and uh, we were texting back and forth, and you know, somebody texted, oh, our power's back on, God's faithful. And my, my older brother Gary texted back, well, technically he was faithful when the power was out too. Bro, seriously, you had to lay that on me? I mean, it's true, but come on. It was 40 degrees in my house. But he's right. I I have to believe God's either good all the time, or it really doesn't matter if he's only good 50% of the time. He has to be good all the time, or this equation falls down. I use the word equation. I really shouldn't, should I? This relationship. So God's either sovereign or he's not. God's either good or he's not. And that's going to leave us with some tensions, isn't it? My dad was friends with John Walvert, who was the second president of Dallas Seminary for a long time. And um, toward the end of Dr. Walvert's life, he and my dad would go to lunch a lot because they were their offices were just a couple doors apart. And um, Dr. Walvert had a son who died tragically in a car accident. Prime of his life. Huge promise of great things before him. And uh, one day Dr. Walvert, this titan of Christian theology, said to my dad over lunch, you know, Chaplain Bill, I believe that all things do work together for good for those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. But I... I've never seen any good come from the death of my son. I'm going to believe that it's true, but I can't see it. And I think that is an important distinction we have to make. Because the fact of the matter is, we are not operating with the same view that God is, are we? I don't see what God is up to. I don't know what his... I mean, I know the end game because I've read Revelation. So, spoiler alert, we win. But, on a small scale, I don't know why certain things happen. I don't know why pandemics hit. Job's the perfect book for this time in life, isn't it? I don't know why these things happen. I don't know why why personal suffering or, or, or global suffering, I don't know why, I don't. But I have to believe that God is accomplishing something good on some timeline of his own and at his own discretion. Because if I don't, then he becomes a pretty bad guy, doesn't he? He's either got bad character or he's asleep at the wheel. If I choose to say God is sovereign 
He's in control and he knows what he's doing. And if I choose to say, and God is good, and acting in love, even if I don't understand how, then what is my response? What was Job's response at the end of the book? It was humility and trust. Humility and trust. See, the the kicker is that Job really still never got his answer, did he? Job never got his answer. Job just had to be content with, are you going to trust me, Job? Are you going to trust me? And and once Job did that, he said, I'm going to trust. I'm going to humbly trust. And I think that posture of humility and trust is where we need to live. I don't know about you. I, again, I, I have a personality that's full of flaws, and um, I try to utilize them to you know, navigate this world, and it has led me to be a teacher. So as a teacher, I try to explain everything, right? Not surprising. I'm, I'm a teacher. I want to tell people, oh, here's what you need to know. Here's how you do that. You know? I teach, I teach ideas and skills and thinking and, and writing and essays and how to unpack modern poetry. But this bleeds over into all of my life. If my wife says, oh, honey, the toaster went out. I'm like, okay, I'll find out what we need to do to replace it. And I'll do research for two weeks. I will re- I'll read Consumer Reports. I'm going to go to Amazon and I'm going to read all the reviews. And I'm going to strategize. I'm going to ask people on Facebook, hey, what toasters do y'all love? Tell me. I need feedback now. And I, and I you know, like I want even toasting and I, a lot of, you know, easy clean. Like I'm going to, and after two weeks, I'm going to come in and say, Becca, first of all, you're welcome. Second of all, I found the one. At which point she's like, oh, did you not notice I just bought the Black & Decker the other day at the grocery store because you were taking so long? No. Anyhow. I'm convinced that with enough study, with enough figuring of my little grape up here, I'm going to figure it out. Do you know that? I've committed my life to teaching people how to think because we can figure it out. And this book is a huge splash of water that says, by the way, Phil, no, you won't. No, you won't. And I think that's why it's the first thing God wrote down. Let's just get this out of the way. If you're not going to trust me completely... This is going to be really, really uncomfortable. If you're not going to completely wholesale trust that I'm in control and I'm good and I've got your best interest ultimately in mind, then this is never going to work. You see, God's funny because just like with the rich young ruler, he's not going to compel you to believe, is he? If you want to walk away, it'll make God sad, but he'll let you. And I think Job is a line in the sand for a lot of people. And I think it becomes a, a, a regular line in the sand for me. Because it has to push me back. Because so often I find myself going, well, I'm sure this is why God did that. I'm sure this is what God's teaching me. I'm sure this is what God... And sometimes I need to just shut up. And say, you know what I'm sure of? I'm sure God knows what he's doing. Even if I don't. And I'm sure he's good. And that's enough. That's enough. How should we 
respond to each other. If that's how we respond to God in humility and trust. You know, we should probably do the same thing with our relationships that are human. Do you find yourself um, <clears throat> explaining to people what's happening to them? Well, I think what the Lord's trying to teach you is... By the way, we all love that. When I was a new minister, I was a minister for 17 years before I became a full-time teacher. Um, when I was a new, newly minted minister out of seminary, I had to do hospital calls. And I called my dad, who'd been a minister for decades... I said, Dad, i got to go to the hospital and talk to somebody who's sick in the hospital. I have no idea what to do. I have no idea what to do. And he said, well, son, he said, there's a few options. He said, one, you can go and make small talk. Talk about the weather. Talk about the cowboys. Um, He said, a lot of people do that. And he said, you know, there's an element of that that's okay. You know, it's a distraction from the tubes and the beeping and the things like that. But he said, you know, these people are hurting. They may need something more substantial than a recap of the cowboys game. He said, another option is to go in and try to explain it to them. And he said, don't do that. Don't go in and try to explain their cancer diagnosis to them. Don't, don't do that. He said, you know what I do, son? I walk in, I hold their hands, and I say, I'm just so sorry. I'm just so sorry you're hurting. I'm just so sorry. Don't offer an explanation. Don't figure it out. Don't avoid the issue. Job's friends were great for seven days when all they did was sit in the garbage heap with him and not say a word. Then they blew it. Humble yourself before the Lord. Trust Him. He's good. And in your human relationships, don't try to fill God's job and explain to them what they're going through. Sit with them like another person in subject to the living God and say, I'm walking through this with you. I don't know that I understand it any better than you, but I love you and I'm sorry you're hurting. Let's walk together. We have to trust that God will make things right. And the thing is, he may not make it right in a temporal setting for me. You know, I always, anybody read uh, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith? Isn't it uplifting, right? By faith, this person did this, and God did this. By faith, this person did this, and God did this. And then you get to the end of the chapter, and what does it say? And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith, listen to this list, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, Flight. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. That's a, quite a list, isn't it? Woo! That's impressive. And then we don't miss a beat. And others were tortured, not accepting the release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskin, goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, Okay, I'd like to go back to the putting foreign armies to flight. Where's that stuff? I'm not an equation, everybody. Sometimes I deliver in a way that you think is great. And sometimes I don't. But what happens? 
These are men of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because, what does it say? God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The ultimate promise is what? What's the ultimate promise we have? Eternity, right? Eternity in God's presence. So here's the thing. If it doesn't work out now, what can I be certain of? The end is satisfied. It's set. I know what's going to happen. In the meantime, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have the answers. I can't explain it. And I hurt when I suffer. But I trust that God is good. I trust that he knows what he's doing. And I trust that he has sorted out the beginning from the end. And my eternity is fixed in his hand. Let's pray. Father, we we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We ask that you would allow us to navigate the suffering of our lives with the hope of eternity and with humble trust in you, in your power, and in your character. Help us to interact with those around us with that same humility and show the same mercy you show us. And God, let us never fall into the trap of making you less than sovereign because we're sure we can figure out every move you make. It's okay that you are beyond our realm. It's okay that you're so much beyond our understanding that at times we are perplexed. But we're, we're not forsaken. So Father, help us to trust in you. I pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. Let us stand together.